0: sorry, uh, going through First John over the holidays may not have been the best idea because it's kind of, uh, there's one argument that's being presented here and we're kind of already chopping it up into different Sundays so it's difficult and then having like a few Sundays on different passages makes it even more. But, but last time in December when we went through the first part of this chapter, I just sort of ended abruptly. I, I may end up, just ending abruptly again, too, because it's just, I'm trying to section out sections that seem reasonable, but it's, it's almost impossible to do that. And so, and then time just doesn't permit. So I'm just sorry if I don't wrap it all up and I just sort of end abruptly because I just, we can't go too long. But he brings up again here in this chapter the point in which he's writing it when he says, I don't want you to be deceived that the, the history of what's happening, just as a reminder, is that uh, the church had started in, in Jerusalem. It was really a, a part of Judaism, and it was a disagreement over who Jesus was, whether he was the Messiah or not. But what happened was is that the Roman Empire was ruling over that area, and they issued a law, um, most likely because they felt like there was just too much unruliness in the area, they issued a law that said everyone that was Jewish or or from Judea or Israel had to leave Israel, their home country, and go somewhere else. And and so everyone was forced to leave and John, along with them, and John went up and settled into one of the areas where uh, Paul had planted some different churches and he had become a leader in the church there and was helping to uh, point leaders and deal with problems and things in that area. And one of the things historically that we know, there, there's two main problems for the church in, in that area, and, and really at that time, and, and really uh, still today. And that was an, an attack on what Jesus had really said, and not so much just on G- what Jesus had actually said, but an attack on the message or the gospel that Jesus Brought, And one of them was that people were just flat out making stuff up about Jesus at that time. And thankfully, John was an eyewitness to the things that Jesus said. So, so he was a perfect person to address this because he could say, look, I was there with Jesus. I heard everything that Jesus said, and this doesn't remotely fit with anything that Jesus said. And not only that, but there's no evidence that anyone's there. You don't have any eyewitnesses that that collaborate this and the other was something a little bit different but it was of the same sort and there was a longer tradition with that and what that was is that people were it's rooted in the issue of circumcision that we read in acts about people saying look if you need to if you're going to become a christian you also need to become circumcised And the issue there wasn't really the circumcision. It was about the adherence to the law. And it's about this dispute that has always been there from the very beginning in the church and in worship in general. And it's this sense that how do we get the blessing of God? How how are we saved by God? How do we proceed forth in our life so that things will be good. And one is that the thought that that happens by us understanding what God tells us is good and then us going out and doing it. And if we do what God tells us to do, particularly the commands, then we will be blessed. And if we don't, then we will be cursed. And Jesus' message wasn't a denial of that. His message was, yes, that is the case. And so, therefore, we're all living under the curse. And that's why we're all facing death, because we're not living up to God's standards or even our own standards. And, and But there is another way to live up to God's standards, and that's by just asking for repentance. And if God is willing to forgive us, then we can be seen by God as righteous and, and move forward on a blessing that's given to us based on His grace and His forgiveness. And, and there's... That tension that's there in the, in the Bible, that, that was that second form. And the, what Paul is trying to do is he's trying here to explain why that tension isn't really a tension that God's bringing. It's actually pulling us in opposite directions. One is working to harden our heart, and the other is working to soften our heart. And what John is trying to do is to not let them lose the freedom and the joy and the sense of love and that softening of their heart that comes in that, like, you can think back to moments when something happened and you knew you kind of deserved this to happen and you, maybe you prayed or something and then you just it, it didn't happen and you knew that you were sort of saved just by forgiveness the, the joy that comes in that that it works out that's what he's saying we should be able to live in that continuously now but we lose that by this other message that's attacking us and so he, he's about ready to go into that and explain it and, and he's not at all talking about something that's coming from outside the church to attack us it's something that's welling up within us based on what we think God's word or God's expectations are on us. And, and so here, we'll just go through it part by part. And, and again, I'm sorry, I usually break it up into sections, but, but there's just, um, I don't know, I just wasn't able to do it. He starts here, he says, do not love the world or anything in the world, um, the world, the the word there is, um, obviously it applies to something more than just what we think of as the world. It's the word for order, and the idea is the world is an ordered place, especially in, in Greek culture and mind. The, the cosmos is what it's talking about. And so what he's saying is, is, do not love the the what we see as the order or the... ...method or the system or whatever it is that's coming from... ...everything that pertains to where we are in this life... ...and the word things. It would be like saying, um, as an application of it... like, ...do not love the order that comes with accounting... ...and the calculator that comes with it. I don't know. Something like that. I, I, the only reason why I bring that up is sometimes people just think... ...the things and think he's just talking about materialism... ...of just wanting stuff... That's included, but it's actually a broader picture. To saying, here's the way we think that the world r- runs around us, and the things that we think are true about the systematic processes or the causes, causes and effects, and, and all the things that are now have value on that basis. Does that make sense? So I don't know. That's the only thing I think of is, I, I know accountants don't use calculators anymore. They have like a. I, I understand that. Just bear with you. Old example. If you love the world or this process, all this stuff, the love of the Father is not in you. He's not saying that the Father does not love you because it's very clear that John says in other places, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So he's not saying God doesn't love you. God loves everybody. He's just saying that In the church, as we think about how we can productively serve God, there's oftentimes all these things out here in the world in this process, and we think that somehow the love of the Father is worked out through all those things. And that's why, maybe it's not so much the case anymore, but it used to be in the church that you would have like the leaders of the church, because John's going around appointing leaders and things like that, it would there 's oftentimes a push to have like the most successful business person in the church to be a leader because you think that there 's some it 'd be like look if we had like say we had Bill Gates in the church for some odd reason, and then someone who was just living out of their car, our natural tendency would be to say oh well here 's this person let 's have him be our leader and not have this and, and the reason why he's addressing this is because the entire Bible is sort of example after example of God choosing the person that was living out of the car to run things. And all he's saying here is we just want to have this connection to the things of this world and somehow think that the love of the Father comes from us involved with this somehow. But he's just saying it doesn't. There's no connection Whatsoever in the slightest. He says, for everything in the world, all of this stuff, he says, it's really about the, the cravings of sin. And that, that's not a really... I don't, uh, it's about the desires. I mean, a lot of your Bibles may say uh, the desires of the flesh. And sinful people is a good translation. But but it, again, it is it colors things in a way that, that leaves open something that he's actually arguing against. Because when you hear the word sinful people, you think he's talking about, oh, here's all the things in the world, and he's talking about the things that we've done wrong. The sinful part of it, not the good part. You know, he's different... It actually says flesh, and everyone has flesh. It says eyes, everyone has eyes. Or if you don't have eyes, it's not even talking about the eyes. It's about the way that we see the world. Everyone has a way that they see the world. He's not differentiating and talking here about the things that we do bad versus the things that we do good. He's talking about it all, that all of us have. He says that this avenue of things that we keep thinking is going to, the love of God is going to work through. He says there is no connection and in fact this stuff isn't from God. It's actually rooted in just desires that we have. And then he explains what those desires that we have we desire for these things to save us. We desire for the love of God is bringing good into our life and making good things happen and bringing us salvation, but we have this desire within us to have that salvation and that good to come from something else. That's where he says it's rooted in. And and, and people say, well, God can use anything. It's like, obviously, he's talking about our mindset that don't think that there's some connection to all this stuff, politics or methods of doing this or this needs to become accomplished or this method or this is the way to do church or this is the way we do... The, all of that, God doesn't need any of that. I mean, He obviously works through us, all of us sinful people. But the, the, that all of that attachment to all that and, and the... The fixation, the love that we have for all that is really just rooted in something else that's coming from us. The desire that we have to see things this way. And then he says, uh, the boastings about what they have and do. That's pretty good. It's that word bias, it's sort of the manner in which we live And what he's just saying is, it's the way in which we are so deceitful about the manner in which we live. So it's the desire to have our salvation and the good and whatever be mediated through all these other things. And the reason why we have that desire is we have this, we're trying to build an image of our life and our manner of life that's actually not true. It's deceitful. And I don't know. I I feel like I need to digress into a bunch of examples of that. You you know, (laughs) you you can tell like, you know, I I don't know. I guess I should give some example just so you, I don't know. I'll just keep it in the generic because otherwise it'll just go off. You You should be able to tell that when you see us, and even in the way we talk to people, that we talk in a way, we dress, we kind of cultivate our life to kind of present a certain image of who we are and the people we associate. And we kind of develop that, and, and, and there's a certain sense that a little bit of who we are is just really hidden and ignored. And he's saying it's all this thing right here, it's about this desire for our salvation to come from something else, the good in our life to be attached. And the reason why we want is we we have this false image of ourselves that we're cultivating. And we're just doing that all the time. And he says that's what's actually going on here. And he says, the world and its desires are passing away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. He says this whole thing here. He says the way you know it's false. is None of this is going to be reigning in heaven or after this life. It's all just stuff that's for this present time. And it's not really attached to anything of eternal value. And then he brings up this statement. But the one who does the will of God will live forever. Well, what does he mean by... The will of God, it brings up this issue, if you're thinking about it. What is the will of God? And what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, I mean, by the will of God, the first, very first impulse that we have with that is to say, well, God has told us that we need to do this. God has set up this wisdom. And if we follow it, then we'll have that. But that's not what's gonna give us eternal life. And now he's going to talk about this distinction. What we do when we come to Jesus is we believe that eternal life is granted to us based on the forgiveness of our sins, not based on us getting things right. And so this is where he enters into this discussion of the Christ and the Antichrist. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. He, he's referencing a person that has been um, talked about, you know, many different places in the Bible. And the label, or the to tell you the description of it, is Antichrist. It's not anti-Jesus or anti-God or anti-worship. It's Antichrist, and. and that word Christ is anointing. It's the same word that's used later when he says you have this anointing on you. It's Christ. Is and it's sort of a, uh, I don't know why that's called, a literal pronunciation of the word uh, anointing. And uh, so, so last week when we looked at Herod and the, the magi came, the wise men came and uh, they said, you know, where is the king of the Jews? And remember, I just sort of pointed out that Herod, went to the religious leaders and said to them, where is the Messiah? In other words, he changed it because he knew that it was talking about this Messiah, this anointed one that has been talked about that will come, that will set everything up. It's talking about something specific. It's talking about the way in which we will be saved, the way in which we will make things good. And this is the anti or anything other than the way in which the Messiah saves us, which is through the forgiveness of sins. Does that make sense? And so what he's saying is is there will come a person that will rally the entire world behind it in saving itself, and that's contrary to our need for Jesus to have come and died for us. And that was one of the central things that they would talk about back here is that the necessity of they were looking for a savior like the antichrist you might say i hate using that word because that's so much connotations with it but just take it in a literal thing of the that are that's anti this message that we need god to have come and that we need that savior to have died on the cross. we don't need that what we need is just for all of us to get together and fix things and there will be someone that will come that will lead us all in that idea of fixing. And and, and then he says, uh, even now many antichrists have come. You can see he's talking about the concept there. And what he's talking about when in connection with the world is, you see this all the time. There is this deep sense... That if we can all just sort of get together, if we can find someone that's going to rally us all together, that we should be able to solve some problems and make some change, that we should be able to institute good on the earth and sort of save ourselves by this sort of coming together. And there's been a long history throughout the entire world of people being raised up and feeling like that this is the person that's coming And he's saying that that's been happening for a long time, but there will be coming who, where God finally says, all right, I'm going to let you see what it would be like if we all got together on something and worked in a global pattern on stuff. And what the Bible says, it's not going to be pretty when that happens. But we have this ingrained thing in us where we're just constantly looking for that and he says that's what's going on in the church a lot of times. And he's not saying that the, that this concept of we all need to get together, and say, that this is going to be all against the church. What he's saying is he's going to... Here, I'll just keep reading. He says they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. If they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But they're going out shows that none of them belong to us. He's not saying that it's something from outside. It's something from the inside that's going to, in other words, the church has always, the worshipers of God in general have always supported whoever it is that the world has brought forward to say this is going to be the person that's going to solve our problems because we've always ended up thinking along the same way. And, And that's why going back it's, It wasn't like the people from outside Israel that killed the prophets. It was from the worshipers of God that killed the prophets. It's like if you, and this is deeply ingrained in worship. This is sidetracked. But I mean, if you go back to the first murder recorded as Cain and Abel, it was a murder that was sprouted out of people that were worshiping. It was a dispute that happened while they were offering worship to God. And from that dispute, what was the dispute? It was a dispute over the Christ and the Antichrist. It was a dispute over God's blessing coming to us by his grace and his forgiveness versus coming to us by something that's earned and it always results in something murderous. And he's saying this is something that, that's always been there. And then he says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. And the word's the same word as Christ. You could, he's saying, but you have a Christ from the Holy well, Again, he's talking about the concept. You, if you've come to Jesus, you under, you should understand that there is a salvation that is granted to us on the basis of forgiveness rather than on works or rather than on merit or or rather than on us getting some sort of system and us all rallying together and us trying to enforce some sort of laws and and us trying to differentiate between sinful people and good people or who's on our team and who's not and, and try and by force establish some sort of solution that is actually just no solution at all. It's just based on our desires to create. He says... A distorted image of the way we live our life. He says, you have this, you understand this from from the Holy One, Jesus, And, and, and all of you know the truth. He says, if you've come to Jesus, he doesn't say all of you are good people. No, he doesn't say that. He says, the only thing that you can say that you have if you're a follower of the Christ or this message is you have some sort of realization in your life that's based on some sort of experience, some sort of thing where you've come to understand that God's blessing has come to you on the basis of forgiveness, And if you've contributed, you've only contributed in some sort of limited form of repentance. You've maybe repented for this or this that. You haven't even repented. He doesn't say this, but no one's repented for everything that's wrong. So he says, you've got that in you. He's saying to us, church, we know that is the case. And then he says to them, "I, I do not write to you because you don't know the truth but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. He's saying no one needs to stand up here and tell you what the truth is. The truth is the gospel. The truth is the forgiveness that we found in, in Jesus, that, that sense of our heart softening on the basis of having received mercy and, and grace. And it, it's not a matter of you Sometimes, writers of the New Testament did have to go back through and reteach that to us because we had gotten so far from it. But he says, you have it. It's a matter of applying it or abiding in it. Not not listening to people when they're trying to deceive us and and just trying to apply a, a salvation that isn't the Christ. And he says, this isn't a matter of you learning something new. It's a matter of just stop listening to everybody else that's telling you about the salvation that is being hoped for in this Antichrist or Antichrist. He says, who is the liar? It is the one who denies Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. He says, the one thing, the only thing we really know if we've come to Jesus, the salvation that Jesus is offering, where he didn't lead them to victory against the Romans, he actually died on the cross. The Savior saved us by dying, not leading us forward in victory in that the way that they thought. If you've come to that, a Jesus who has died and risen from the dead, that's the salvation we're talking about. So you have no need for someone to talk. You just need to start applying it. And the main way of applying it is don't listen to anyone who's, who's saying something. And in the church, no one's going to deny Jesus, but they will preach and talk to you about a message that renders the idea of forgiveness as not applying to you anymore. Does that make sense? Like if I'm saying, look, here's what you need to do. You need to get this right and get this right and get that right. Well, what's that setting up? That's setting up this hope that I'm gonna get to someplace where I will have made the goodness and the salvation happen and I won't need to have it given to me on the basis of forgiveness. He says, that's an anti-Christ. That, that's an anti the one thing that we know, which is I had a relationship with God from the beginning. He, he says, he says, such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Why is he talking about the Father and the Son? He's talking about in the church, we, and you know, especially at this time, people had grown up looking through the Bible and, and feeling or so here's what the father is saying to me and and now Jesus has come and we have these other writings the gospel and so we have these things that the father has said but what they don't see is the things that the father has said has only talked about our need for Jesus and, and the Christ but we've built up in the church and amongst the worshipers of God this idea that what the father says is that we need to earn our righteousness, so that we need to be blessed because we've done the right thing. And, and so there's this sense and the thing that like the Bible is being used against the gospel and against what Jesus says or, or as a counterweight or as a tension that, that here's this, well then here's also this. And he's saying, look, if you really look at it, there isn't that. That throughout the entire Bible, it's only talked the only kind of salvation that's ever, the blessings of God, everything good that's ever happened to anybody throughout the history of the Bible only came to them because God was willing to forgive them. And you see that over and over again, that they prove themselves to be unrighteous, but God forgives them and, get, and treats them as though they are righteous, even though they're not. He says, there is no difference going on here. And and as for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you or abides in you. If it does, you will remain in the Son and the Father. And this is what he has promised us eternal life. It's what he's promised to give us on the basis of repentance, on the basis of forgiveness, on the basis of what... He did for us on the cross. And he's saying, if you've come to know and accept this as truth, then the job from here on out is to not let go of that. And not let people pull you away from that. And not to let people say, well, the Bible also says this. and there's a... Look at it. He's saying, it doesn't say that. And let this be your guide, what it is that you know that was true from the very beginning. From the very beginning of the Bible, as we talked about, you know, Cain and Abel. But at the very beginning of you accepting Jesus as our Savior. Which is, I need forgiveness for my sins. I needed a relationship with God. I needed him to save me. I needed him to help me. And I needed that to come by him willing to forgive me. He says, let that remain. And the promises eternal life. The the promises isn't just you'll live a few more years. The promise is the promise in the world is if you do all this, you'll gain five more years of life. What? If you do all this, you'll have happiness for five minutes. If you get all this done, we'll be able to pull together and have a year of Jubilee or something. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. What he's saying is is if this is coming from God and if it is a gift from God and if it is based on forgiveness and if the promise is the greatest blessing, the the ultimate good that you can have which is eternal life with God the Father who loves you and and cares about you with people where there's loving and caring going on, that's the promise of, of the gift. And he says, don't trade that in. And that's what he's trying to tell them in the church. It's not, oh, you're going to go to hell or this or that. He's just telling them, in this life, don't lose the joy and the security that comes from this promise of the Christ that you've joined into. He says, as for you, See, what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. And if it does, you also will remain in the Son and the Father. And this is what he promised, eternal life. And he says, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. And as for you, the anointing you received from him, that's the same word, Christ, The anointing you have received from him, the Christ you have received from him, that that salvation you have received from him, that salvation based on grace remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you, as this, the Christ leads you, as this gospel, what we have bought into at the very beginning that I have favor with God, that, that his love is coming out to me. And, and even though I can't get it right, he, it's still gonna view me as his son because of Jesus. He says, you don't need any teaching if you have that. Let that teach you. In other words, sometimes in the church, we say, well, I've heard the gospel. Let's just talk about something a little bit more meaty. Every time everyone wants to talk about something more, it's always about the love of this, the things of this world. He says, don't go there. That's a temptation. That's not growing. That's not... He says, grab a hold of that, that we were saved by forgiveness, by Him paying the price, and then let that teach us where our hope is. Let that teach us where our heart is going to be. Let that teach us where... And people think, well, where that teaches us is just teaches us to do Nothing. That's not true. This is... I don't know why I thought of this story. This may be a stupid way to end it. I remember there's this story, and I always, when I hear a story now, I have to say, I don't know if it's true, because, I don't know, you didn't used to have to do that. But there's a story, I think it was about World War II, and I think it's actually been in a movie, too but I had heard about it before then. And there was, you know, trench warfare. Both sides were were just slaughtering each other. All that anyone was doing to make progress, progress was defined. Making the world a better place was defined by people just getting up out of a trench, running, and just being mowed down by bullets. And everyone took their turn, Making progress. And it's just littered in barbed wire. Everywhere. And there's a story of this horse that came. And ran across the battlefield. And everyone's firing at everything. But no one fired at it. And it got all caught up in the barbed wire that was there. And, you know, it had to have been. I mean, you have to put this into the context of how horrific war is. And how horrific trench warfare and chemicals and all that business. You know, if we were to see a horse laying on its side caught in barbed wire, that would be, you know, traumatic. But, like, this is, it was traumatic even to people who were just dulled to their senses by just mowing people over with bullets. And what happened was, is some people from one side put up a little white flag and they started walking out. Sort of took their life into their own hands because everyone's been killing everyone to go out and try and free this horse. And then people from the other side came out and they did the same thing. And you had this little moment where people who had been killing each other were all trying to free this horse and they freed the horse and then it was kind of this weird moment. Everyone walked back and then just kept killing each other. (laughs) But there was at least some moment when even in the heart of darkness, there was this moment that maybe you might even say was brought about by God, where it's like there's this horse and somehow it softened people's hearts. And, it, and when their heart was softened, it didn't lead them to inaction. It led them to risking their life in a way that they, yeah, you get the point. If our hearts can be softened, that doesn't lead us to inaction. It leads us to action of a whole other sort. And that's why Jesus' says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friend. He, it's not a call to inaction. That, that's a straw man argument that this other side puts up to say, no, the only reason why we would ever act is out of fear and hatred and to establish some sort of new world order and this and that and the hope of that. no. There's another reason to act. And that's that you've sensed that God loves you and he cares for you and he's willing to forgive us. And it softens our heart. And he's saying, live in that moment. Whatever it is that happened when the horse crossed over and people said, just live in that and don't let anyone pull you. At that moment, what should have happened is everyone should have just thrown down their guns and walked away. That didn't happen because they probably would have all been killed by the higher-ups because of whatever. But he's saying this is the opportunity that you have with Jesus. You had some sort of moment that softened your heart. And he says the goal isn't to now let all these other people harden it again. Just stay there in that softening of that and let it continue. And here's where we'll end. He says, but his anointing, this moment of salvation, this the Christ, teaches you about all things. And as that anointing is real, not counterfeit. It, it, as soon as you start to think about this and look at your life in this way, you'll, you'll soon find out what's real and what's counterfeit. And he's saying, don't just take it by... So I'm talking too loosely... He's not saying don't take it by faith. He's saying do take it by faith, but take it by a faith in what you see happening in regards to how it is that good is coming into our life. If you have a moment where you see it's coming by God's grace, by his forgiveness, by the Christ dying on the cross, if you see that moment as real, then you'll see that all this other stuff is just counterfeit. And he says, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. And if you know that he is righteous, not if you know that you are righteous, if you know that your group is righteous, he just says, if you know that Jesus is righteous, You know that everyone who does what is right has been born or begotten of him. You'll, you'll start to understand that even in those things where someone looks and says, Well, I think someone has done something good or hasn't, you'll see that that's only the case because Jesus is making even that happen. Let's pray. Um, If anyone would like to accept Jesus as their Savior, I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now, and you can just pray along with me. Uh, Jesus, we just thank you for the forgiveness of our sins, and we just ask you to forgive us of our sins. And ask that you will make us your family, that you'll bring us into your family as a son, as a daughter. And if you're willing to accept us based on forgiveness, we we want that and and we desire that. And pray that you would come into us and pray that you would give us the Holy Spirit. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Let's stand and and sing these last songs. And if you have anything that you would like prayer for, I'll I'll be up here and, and some other people may come up too.